0: Father, we come to you this morning expectant because we know that you're a God who loves to speak and because you tell us that all your word, all scripture is living and active. And so we pray that you would help us see how these three chapters make a difference to us. Soften our hard hearts and open our blind eyes to see your glory afresh, we pray. In Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Okay, so um, the plan for this
0: morning is slightly different. I'm aware that this account is probably um, new to a good number of us. It's slightly complicated and convoluted. I want to try and cover all three chapters. And so what I'm going to do is try and map out what happens between chapter 22 to 24 for the first half or so. And then has been the second half trying to work out what it means, um, how it applies to us tomorrow morning. What, What is it for us as believers under the new covenant? How does Numbers 22 to 24 help us? So last week, if you were here, you recall that the story, in a sense, was the end of an old generation. Do you remember we had Miriam dying at the start of chapter 21? Then we had Aaron dying at the end. And then there was the Canaanite victory, that new start, against Arad, they march up to the borders of the promised land, and things are looking good initially, and so our chapters begin this morning outside the land. Israel camped along um, the, the edge, opposite, opposite Jericho, along the Jordan, touching distance of the land that God has promised. They're finally there, but news has spread about them to the Amorites, what they had done to the Amorites. And, So Balak, the local king, the local Moabite king, is is worried. He's in charge. He wants to think, well, how do we get rid of these people? He feels threatened by them. He knows their numbers. He knows their track record. And they seem pretty intent on entering where he lives. So how can he get rid? He's asking the question, how can I take them out? What weapon do I use to get rid of this swarm of people on the edge of my land overlooking me? And the answer? The answer is a curse. At least that's his plan. And so Balak, powerful man, c- contacts a man seemingly well known for this kind of cursing, Balaam. He goes for the best. He he contacts Balaam, top of the tree. And he is the one they hope will come and curse them and neutralize them and, and hamstring the people so they won't enter. That's his plan. A couple of things to say about Balaam. One is that that there's good evidence that he existed. Um, What you see on the screen there is a a picture from an archaeological find from 1967. Um, 119 fragments of plaster from a wall, probably a sanctuary. It's about 1,200 years old, but tells a much older story of a man called Balaam, who was supposedly a seer of the gods well known for his visions and his prophecies so it's likely that he was real but it's also worth saying as the account unfolds we'll see he's he's got a slightly unusual role he's a prophet of sorts but he's also a politician he, he's a, a witch doctor and a spin doctor He's a powerful man, somebody with significant authority, who makes a living from words. And so there's a theme right the way through the chapters of of someone who says perhaps what people want to hear, if he can. So Balak sends powerful and important messengers to find the prophet Balaam, the professional prophet-politician-cursor. And he briefs him with his job description, verse 9, and then God comes to him, sorry, verse 9, and asks, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they're blessed. So God says no. God says, walk away. There is nothing to see here. You cannot do this. You cannot curse these people because they are a blessed people. And so Balaam, via the officials, tells Balak, I'm sorry, I can't do it. The Lord has refused to let Balaam go with them to curse the Israelites. That should have been the end of the story. I think that should have been it. But of course, Balak didn't get where he was today for taking the initial answer. Everyone has a price. So no doubt, Balaam has a price as well, he thinks. He sends more important messengers to go and find him. He sends the promise of more money to try and persuade him. But Balaam then is surprisingly unsure. It was an unequivocal no last time they came to ask. But again, he inquires of the Lord. That seems unusual. What was it he was hoping for? The Lord would change his mind. He would see sense, he would come round. And so verse 20, that night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. It's unusual, isn't it? It seems that God now gives the green light. It was red light first time and now it's the green light. What's going on there? Has he changed his mind? What's happening? Why did the Lord Lord initially say no and now he's saying yes? Yes. Well, I wonder whether in the initial question, verse 9, is actually really key to this whole thing. So remember the Lord says, who are these men? And I wonder if there's an implicit contrast there. Who are you going to listen to, Balaam? These men? What authority do they have to summon you? Do you listen to me and what I say? Or do you listen to these men? mere men. And their money and their status and what they say. What matters to you most, Balaam? And you see, when they come and ask again and the Lord says, okay, green light this time, it's almost as if he's saying, well, their summoning matters more to you than what I think. You want to listen to these mere men and the money they have? Okay,
1: off you go then. And so he goes. And then we meet a donkey blocking the way. This donkey from the Lord.
0: Why does the Lord block his way via a donkey? He's just said he can go. He's just given him the green light. And now the donkey blocks their passage. Again, there are various ideas. It's an unusual story. There are various ideas that people suggest. Maybe it's to do with what Balaam omitted to mention. So I wonder if that's it. The lure of money was so much, so attractive to him. He didn't say to them what the Lord had told him. The Lord had said, verse 20, only go if you do what I tell you to do. But he fails to mention that to them. It's almost as if he wants to imply that he's got things straightened with the Lord. He's sorted things out. The Lord has come round to his way of thinking. And he forgets to clarify that, in a sense, he's very much a prophet on a lead. He can only go and say what the Lord says him to say. And he admits he admits from telling them that. He can't curse the people of God. He can't do what Balak wants him to do. But perhaps the promise of money means he goes anyway. And the irony is you've got this so-called visionary prophet this seer, and he can't see the angel of the Lord blocking his way, whereas the donkey can. Three times the angel of the Lord gets in the way, three times the donkey avoids the angel, three times Balaam beats a disobedient donkey with a stick, and the final time the Lord opens the donkey's mouth to speak. It was a bit like Shrek. I'm not sure he's on Kidslot next week, but there's an easy one. Anyway. The Lord opens the donkey's mouth to speak, but as well as that, he opens Balaam's eyes to see what's going on. It's remarkable, a speaking donkey. But maybe more remarkable is a blind and impotent prophet. Here is a man hired by a nation to curse another nation, yet a simple donkey makes a complete fool out of him. A stubborn and disobedient donkey, indeed, whom... Balaam thinks deserves death verse 29 Balaam answered the donkey he didn't say why can you speak he says you have made a fool out of me if only I had a sword in my hand I would kill you here and now and it hasn't hasn't Balaam just been disobedient if he thinks the donkey deserves to be punished for disobedience isn't he condemning himself what about him I think we're meant to join the dots. The irony is there for us to see. Balaam is making a noose that he might wear. And so verse 34, with his tail between his legs, the account continues. Balaam's eyes are open to the situation. He, He sees what the Lord is saying. And so three times in the chapter, Balaam is met with by the Lord. Again, though, it's reiterated he can't go with them. Or if he goes with them, he's only allowed to say what the Lord tells him to say. Verse 36. The king and the prophet meet for the first time, and Balaam reiterates that again. Verse 38, I've come to you now, but I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. And Balaam, maybe wisely, lays down the law. He's up front and says, I, I cannot say what you want me to say. I can only say what the Lord tells me. What would you do if you were Balak in those shoes? Would you not maybe have a rethink back to the drawing board? Okay, plan B, is there another prophet we can call on? If I can't curse the people of God, then maybe there's another way I can attack them or something. But he crashes on with the plan anyway. Maybe maybe he's used to getting his own way. It certainly feels like that as we We meet Balak right the way through these chapters. And so he crashes on with the plan and constructs for the first time some altars. In fact, there are three sets of altars throughout the the account. Let me read it for you. Balaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stay here beside your offering while I go inside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I'll tell you. Then he went off to a barren height. Verse 4 God met with him, and Balaam said, I've prepared seven altars, and on each altar I've offered a bull and a ram. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Go back to Balak and give him this word. And we know what he's going to say. We know he cannot curse the people of God. He can't do what Balak wants. Right from 22 verse 12, we've known the answer. He cannot curse them because the Lord has blessed them.
1: And so the rest of the account really are seven oracles from Prophet Balaam. This is the first one.
0: He begins with a description about the story so far, Balak summoning Aram. Middling bit is the fact that he can't curse them, and the end bit is almost a longing and an admiration to be like the people of God. To verse 9 there, from the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. I see people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. They're holy, they're set apart, he's admiring them. Or verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and may my final end be like theirs. Balak, not so keen on that message, actually. Wasn't quite what he had hoped for. He was hoping for more of a curse theme going through. And he's not used to getting his own way, to not getting his own way. He's not used... To being ignored Balaam he said I wasn't kidding I cannot curse these people I can only give you what the Lord tells me to say and Balak says I know what we'll do we'll try a different place let's build more altars on a different mountain see if that turns out any better let's have a go there shall we and it turns out it didn't the next one arise Balak and listen hear me son of Zippor it's verse 18 God is not a human that he should lie not a human being that he should change his mind does he speak and then not act does he promise and not fulfill I've received a command to bless he is blessed and I cannot change it no misfortune is seen in Jacob no misery observed in Israel the Lord their God is with them the shout of the king is among them God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. I told you, I cannot curse them. Balak says, have another go. Let's have a different altar this time. And I think verse 27, 23 verse 27, is my favorite verse in the account. Perhaps we see something into Balak's head in his worldview. Then Balak said to Balaam, come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please the Lord God to curse you, them, to to let you curse them for me from there. Third altar. What do we think is going to happen? Is it likely to work? Again, another oracle comes 24, verse 3 to 9. Rather than cursing the people of God, he blesses them. He describes their beauty, their blessing, how the Lord will bless them. There's a certainty about it. Balak wasn't keen on hearing it, but it's going to happen. Look at verse 7, 24 and verse 7. Water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. Again, it's not so much of a curse theme. And Balak finally seems to get the message. The penny has finally dropped then of what he's up against. Verse 10 then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, or to go beyond the command of the Lord. And, I must, and must I say only what the Lord says? Now I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people would do to your people in days to come. So before he goes, we've had three oracles, we've got four more little ones. And the spotlight falls on Balak's people within the surrounding nations as well. They're all going to be judged by the Lord. Verse 15 to 19, he outlines the enemy nations of Moab, Sheth, Edom, and Seah will be conquered. Verse 20, the spotlights on Amalek. 21, 21 to 22, it's the Kenites. And the final one, before Balaam leaves, Asher and Eber are mentioned as well. And then in almost comedy fashion, the pair disappear. Verse 25, then Balaam got up and returned home and Balak went his own way. And that's it. It's an extraordinary account, isn't it? We've got this greedy, prophet politician hired by one of God's powerful enemies to ask him to curse the people of God. Balak takes a while to work out you can't do that, and then we have a talking donkey. And how does that help you on Monday morning? I think there are various themes and ideas that we could explore. Um, Balaam comes up a number of times later in the Bible. He's especially highlighted as being one who is double-minded, who has a greed and a love of money. And I think you see that coming through in the account. You can pick that up in various places. Uh, 2 Peter 2, Revelation 2, Jude 11, if you're a note-taker. I'll look at them later. So we could focus on the double-mindedness of Balaam, maybe... We can focus on the fact that God even uses people like that to speak. God uses all kinds of people. Maybe even the fact that Balaam was only able to say what the Lord wanted him to say. And I think those things are there, but they're somewhat in the background. I want us to dig into two things for the rest of our time together. The first thing to see is how not to relate to the true God. The question to ask in the first place is, what was Balak doing?
1: What is going on there? What is his understanding of God in the first place?
0: I think the foundational problem initially is an, a misunderstanding of the power of God, of who God is, the true God. And Balak is essentially coming with a man-centered understanding of religion. If, if my God is bigger than your God, then I'll be okay. If I can find someone powerful enough to curse you and your people and your God, then I'm the winner. And in his mind, at least at the start, well, then I go for the top of the tree, I go for Balaam. He is my man to curse you. If I press the right buttons in the right order and say the right words, then my God will win and will beat your God or God's. It has to work, he thinks. And if he's not winning, if my man can't curse your people and your God, then I'll try different buttons in a different order. I'll do different sacrifices on different mountains. I'll keep trying. I'll try over there next. We'll give it a go, maybe over there as well. I think that's why, despite the cost, Balak keeps on going with the altars and the sacrifices and the the treadmill of religion going on. Even though Balaam has told him he, he can't curse them, we'll just have another go. We'll try somewhere else. We'll press those buttons and see if that works. It was a drain on resources. Each time you've got seven altars, you've got a bull and a ram, You've got the money promised to Balaam. You've got officials, princes, envoys being sent to them. But he has a false understanding of God. And friends, false worship is a costly waste of time. When you're up against the true God of the Bible, the God who made it all, then it doesn't work. Rather than the seven altars that he goes for here, Israel just needs one altar because Israel engages in true worship, because Israel knows the true God who made the world. And it's not like the spiritual, superstitious counterfeits of Balak and Balaam expensive, uncertain, ultimately utterly impotent,
1: doesn't work. You say to me, well, I'm not going to make seven altars and sacrifice bulls and
0: rams to try and get my way. I'm far too advanced and sophisticated for that. But I've known Christians who, who do slide into superstition stuff. They're hard to let go. The touching wood for luck or the concerns about Friday the 13th or the crossing the fingers or not being content with seeing two magpies or walking under ladders or that kind of stuff. But probably more common in a room like this, actually, is this tendency, this thinking that we have, that if I play my part and do what I'm meant to do and press the right buttons in the right order, then God is bound to give me what I want. If I say the right thing at the right place in the right time, then God had better show up, frankly, and do what he's meant to do. And suddenly it becomes dependent on us. And if my life is not going well, then maybe the fault is mine and I'm, I'm not, pressing the right buttons in the right order or doing the right things. And if I work a bit harder, he's bound to bless me. If I read my Bible a bit more or or give a bit more money, then God will perform. He's bound to, he has to. It's how he works, we think. And our hearts veer towards this legalism
1: that smells a bit like Balak. I think I've said before, but my... My most
0: consistent time of excellent devotional life, put it that way, were during my A-levels. About three months of quality, consistent, quiet times. Praying just flowed. Bible reading was fruitful. And I look back and I see it was because I wanted stuff from God. And I wanted to do well in my A-levels. So I thought, well, if I do this for him then he must give me the right questions. And he must give me the the results that I need to get here, to do this. And I look back and I'm ashamed, but I still see a heart that veers towards legalism. Martin Luther, the reformer, said essentially that external religion is the default mode of our hearts. And I wonder if he's right. Like a computer that automatically operates in a default mode, unless we change it so luther says even after you're converted even if you're a christian here this morning the default mode of your heart will be go back to operating on a principle of works of pressing the right buttons in the right order to get what you want from your lord unless you deliberately and repeatedly set it to gospel mode Balak and Balaam show us something of how not to relate to God, but, but I wonder if we slide into that thinking far too easily, if we're honest. It shows us something of the default mode of the human heart. It offers us a sense of control. It offers us a sense of thinking we've contributed in some sense, and then we're not truly indebted to the grace of God because we've kind of earned it, actually, And maybe then there's a limit to what he can ask of us, what he asks us to do for him, because we think we've contributed. We've pressed the right buttons in the right order. We've performed the right sacrifices on the right hills. But this kind of works religion doesn't fit in, I think, with the God of the Bible, the God that we see in this story here, because he is a God of blessing that is the extraordinary drumbeat that has resounded for me as i've prepared um, these chapters these last couple of weeks they tell us not just how not to relate to god but how to relate to the true god and they say this specifically friends if there's one thing that you cling on to this week then it's the next slide you cannot stop god blessing his people That is such an important truth, and one that some of us struggle with so much. We're going to do that. As we see the account of Balaam and Balak, know that you cannot stop God blessing his people. Nothing can get in the way. Nothing can block it. Isn't that striking? And I think some of us need to hear that, because that is not how we think of God. Actually, in our mind, he is not the God who always blesses. In fact, for some of us, he's the God who's always angry. He's looking for us to slip up, looking for us to fail, looking for us to get things wrong. But what we see in this account is you cannot stop God blessing his people. It's a huge contrast to the expensive, uncertain Impotent actions of Balak and Balaam. That no money has to change hands for God to bless His people. No sacrifices have to be made for God to bless His people. Nobody has to be paid off. Why? Because He is faithful, and He has already promised to Abraham that He will bless him and his descendants. And when God promises, it is as good as done. We can trust it. We might
1: be a fickle people, but He is faithful. And so Balaam opens his mouth in these oracles, these prophecies. And we see blessing
0: again and again and again. He, he looks back, he looks to the now, he looks ahead. Have a look down with me. He, he looks back and he focuses especially on the promises to Abraham. Actually, you see Abraham coming up again and again and again. The language of Abraham from chapters 22 to 24 is extraordinary. So just give some examples. 23 verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number even a, a quarter, a fourth of Israel. And and do you know, that sounds remarkably like a conversation that God has with Abraham in Genesis thirteen. He says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. He looks back to God rescuing them from Egypt. You get it in twenty-three, verse twenty-two, you get it in twenty-four, verse eight, you actually get it in his initial letter from Balak to Balaam as well. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. Or even the special relationship, the special um, connection with God that they have. They are his people. Again, uses Abraham language. 23 verse nine, may those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. So he says you are dealing with a blessed people because they are the people of God. A God who has made a promise to Abraham. He looks ahead as well, and this is where it gets really interesting. He looks to a time in the land, and to a time beyond the land. So he speaks of a certain future of abundance. So we've already seen 24 verse seven. You see water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. That's because they're going to be in the land and it will be fruitful. But then the next bit as well, 24 verse 7, their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. Which is important because they've not had kings yet. And they're not a kingdom at this point. They're traveling to the land. They're not settled. But Balaam looks ahead and speaks of this king who will bring victory. This king who will be in control, defeating all of their enemies, not just Agag, but all of their enemies. Because in fact, the greatest declaration of God blessing his people is for the distant future. Have a look down at 24 verse 16 and follow that with me. Balaam looking a long way ahead, binoculars on. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls pro- prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And don't miss this a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Do you see, Balaam foresaw one to defeat not just the Amalekites or the Kenites or the powers coming from overseas. But the final words from Balaam, in a sense, sweep across human history. Nation after nation arising to dominate and to be defeated. And so, verse 23, who can live when God does this? The answer, who can live?
1: God's king will live. Those in his kingdom will live. I don't know if it's stretched too far, but many have seen Christmas as a,
0: as a beautiful answer to that prophecy from the lips of Balaam. You have the, the star and the scepter, the king and the kingdom. Maybe with the king and the star high above him and magi from far away coming to bring their treasures
1: and leave them with the child. The king that Balaam speaks of has come. so, friends, as we finish this morning,
0: let's think about how we can work these truths down into the nooks and crannies of our lives. We're meant to see you cannot stop God from blessing his people. And his king has come. His, his blessing to you is utterly unstoppable. You can't do anything about it because his king has come. It means we can trust him. It means whatever's on our horizon, whatever we have in our diary for this next week, that, that meeting, that thing that makes us feel anxious, whatever's coming around the corner for us, whatever comes next, we don't finally have to fear. Even if it's really hard stuff that comes or that we're going through, we can still trust the God who blesses you. You cannot stop God blessing his people. Because his king has come, and in Christ, as we trust him, he pours his undeserved grace, his lavish kindness on his people. And even in the hard stuff, he's at work daily transforming us into the likeness of his son whom he loves.
1: As we take the Lord's Supper in a moment, as we remember the body
0: of Christ broken for us, his blood shed for us, we can remember that glorious grace that he has poured down and does pour down upon us as we remember the death and resurrection of his king who came so that all his enemies are defeated and one day that will be seen by all when every knee will bow. His king
1: has come. You cannot stop God Blessing his people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are for us. As your people, you are for us, and so who can be against us? Thank you that nothing, nobody, no power can stop you from blessing your people. And we pray that that truth would would work its way out
0: into the nooks and crannies of our lives where we have fears and
1: doubts and anxieties and pain and suffering and hardship. would you help us please to remember that your King has come and that in Christ nothing can stop you from blessing your people. In his precious name we pray. Amen.